Hello and welcome to Hearing Our Stories, LGBTQ Plus Lives and the BBC. I'm Matthew Linfoot. I've been delving into the archives at the BBC, searching out material from features and documentaries about LGBTQ people from the past 50 years, which I've shared with two groups of volunteers to hear their reactions and compare their life experiences with the way queer people have been portrayed by the BBC. In this podcast, I'm joined by volunteers from Opening Doors, a national charity that connects LGBTQ plus people over the age of 50 with activities, events and information. Our contributors include older gay men, lesbians and trans women, and we'll be hearing clips from the 1970s and 80s, including the BBC's reporting of the gay liberation movement, a fly-on-the-wall documentary about transitioning, a community programme about Scottish gays and lesbians, and coverage of HIV, AIDS and Section 28. Some of our contributors remember these programmes when they were first broadcast. But how will they react on seeing them again? And do they view them differently in the light of their own lives and experiences since? Before we played any clips, I began by asking our contributors what the BBC has meant to them over the years in terms of queer coverage. I love the BBC. I'm a big fan of the BBC. Um, and I'd agree that the news over the years has been very mixed, but I think entertainment, documentary and drama has certainly improved over the years and representation is much, much better. There's lots of pressure on the BBC, not just with LGBTQ issues, but in, in lots of different ways, to, to somehow present balance that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and to especially in news and documentary programmes. Uh, and I think... There's less pressure on, on drama, I think, but I've seen recently politicians complaining about LGBTQ uh, characters in dramas and, their, and things that they've said, um, which seems, in EastEnders, for example, which seems strange to me. The BBC has allowed itself to be browbeaten into becoming partially a government mouthpiece. You know, uh, and that's been done by withholding funding and all sorts of other ways in which the politicians have tried to do that. So I I think, I'll take your point, I I think the BBC is brilliant in trying to do what they're trying to do because they've got a lot of obstacles in trying to do do that, you know. And it's very difficult for them to be what they were 10 or 15 years ago, which was a very brave and courageous you know, uh, media for all of us. It was our BBC. I don't feel quite so much now that it's my BBC anymore, you know. I like the BBC. Um, but I don't particularly associate them with any particular LGBT issues. So I'll be quite interested to see what what's going to come up. The first clips come from Panorama, the long-running current affairs programme. This item was called Gay Liberation Front and was first broadcast on BBC One on a Monday night in April 1971. It featured a panel discussion with members of GLF and also CHE, the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, exploring the differences between the more radical tactics of the GLF to the less confrontational style of CHE. 
The contrast is even visible on screen with the casual clothes and style of the GLF members compared with the rather formal suits worn by the men from CHE. To begin with, we hear interviewer Julian Pettifer asking Barbara, the only woman on the programme, about her experiences as a lesbian. Well, go on, tell me, when, why is it difficult for you to be a homosexual woman in England today? Well, my, personally, my relationships with the people, I have, most of my friends are heterosexual, and my relationships with them are quite stable. But, for instance, my parents now are... I was prepared to live a double life for quite a while, but I decided this was no good. And I thanked GLF partly for this, and I decided I would have to tell them. Mm. And I told them, and I was rejected so deeply and so suddenly. It was such an abrupt rejection that it hurt me very much. Barbara, when, when did you tell your parents? <clears throat> Yesterday, in fact. And what was their reaction, precisely? Their reaction at first was to look in an encyclopedia to see exactly what the word meant, because they didn't even know. And then when they looked it up, I, I rung them this morning because I couldn't go home. And they said, never come here again. I couldn't explain exactly what I felt. My mother said, how could you lower yourself? <laughs> I mean, I'm not very close to my parents, but I'm close enough to see that, I, I mean, they have done a lot for me. And I, I, I sort of, I have so much affection for them, if not love. Do you think they ought to understand this? Of course, yes. But why should they? I mean, their whole, their whole background, their whole upbringing has been to, to condemn and to despise this kind of... But you see, I wouldn't be so ra rash as to say that they should immediately understand and sympathise, etc., etc. But I would just want them to even listen, to be interested, but they're not. They won't listen to my argument. If there are three million, perhaps, of us who are homosexual in this country today, there will be another three million ten years and twenty years from now, and fifty years from now, no doubt, as the population goes up, there'll be even more. These people will be brought up. They are children today, many of them. They're not going to be corrupted by me or any of us sitting here. They're just going to become homosexual. And if their parents are going to go on being brought up in such a way that they have to look the words up in a dictionary, which may get it wrong, or so that they feel an instinctive, as they think, deep horror, then more cruelty, more suffering will be endured by adolescents and later by mature people who simply can't talk Look, to their own people. All right, th this, this, this uh, is uh, very appealing in a sense, but do you honestly feel that the homosexual does have a tough time, that he is oppressed in Britain today? Uh, if, if a boy or a girl reaches puberty at the age of 12 or 13 and begins to have, have sexual feelings, and if he or she finds that um, his or her sexual feelings are, are, are homosexual, um, this person is completely faced with a barrage of information from the school's misinformation uh, often, from parents, from church, uh, from the people who, who live around. I mean, they're, they're, they're made to feel shameful. They're made to feel very much alone. Uh, I don't think anybody has ever disagreed throughout history that the worst condition of human experience is that of loneliness. Since this gay lib does have all the trappings of a liberation movement, do you foresee a period of clash with the straight society? Oh, yes. Yes, yes but I, I think it's very important that um, the straight society mm. should not uh, regard this as a threat, because even though they may feel it is, I think, in fact, it's not. It's a thoroughly healthy development towards um, better social integration and fuller sexual understanding on the part of all people. Tony, you rather sound like sort of healthy rebellion on the part of an adolescent. I don't think you're quite that. <laughs>
A rather elderly adolescent. You know, it's, it's a rather mm-hmm. patronising attitude. I think the whole attitude of the general public is very patronising towards homosexuals. And justifiably so, to a certain extent. No, sorry, homosexuals have never really fought back. Mm. And there's no reason for people to respect us until we do fight back. I thought it was fascinating. I mean, there's lots of stuff there which is kind of predicting where we are today. I was a year old when that was shown. So I was that child that they were talking about there. And I just think it's just really interesting that they position things which came true, which which are a reality for, for many of us that were there. Um, I, I love that notion of fight back as well, but also that idea at the other end about assimilation and you know we shouldn't fight back we, we should just kind of stay in our place and be quite nice which was part of the older kind of liberation movement as well so i just think that's really interesting to see those those two takes going on there yes you're right aren't you because there was che and glf and che was uh, actually typified by the people in suits that showed and that was the way that some gay people thought that you uh, you showed how Harmless is perhaps not quite the right word, but uh, that you were conventional, you were willing to go along with society, you were responsible, you know, you had a proper job, you wore a suit and so on. And then when gay lib lib came along, it was like, actually, we've had enough now. I was struck by the language she used, you know, like homosexual. (laughs) Homosexual woman. woman. Um, (coughs) You know, she'd obviously not... I don't know whether the, the word lesbian was not in common use or she'd just not learned it. Um, I mean, she wasn't even using the word gay. Um, you, you very rarely hear people describing themselves as homosexuals these days. As far as the interviewer was concerned, I think it's Julian Pettifer, who I was, always thought was gay. Uh, he... he, uh, he um, well, he was. Well, he was. I did quite fancy him, actually. <laughs> That's by the by. But as far as his interviewing technique was concerned, that is an interviewing technique, isn't it? You try to challenge somebody. You say, "Are you really saying that?" Because otherwise, you don't get any, you don't get any discussion. You just get if the interviewer just in, in, agrees with you, then there's no discussion. So he's got to sort of slightly intimidate the person to to, to get some sort of response and to bring something out, to bring some emotion. We then turn to a series of programmes featuring Julia Grant, a trans woman whose transition and subsequent life was the subject of a five-part series over 20 years. This is an excerpt from the first programme, The Big Decision, broadcast as part of Inside Story in June 1979. In this clip, Julia is being questioned by her psychiatrist, whose approval she needs in order to progress to surgery. This encounter is also being observed by medical students in the same room. The programme, and especially the role of the psychiatrist, provokes a strong reaction from many of our participants, who remember watching it when it first went out. You have a letter from your doctor for me, Thank you very much. Just one or two details. Your name is George Roberts. George William Roberts, yes. And how old are you? 24. Right. Well, what is the problem? Well, I feel um, I've been having a fight with myself for a long time. I've now come to terms with the fact that I believe I am a woman um, trapped within a man's body. 
And what, what do you mean by being a woman? Well, my whole, so all my thoughts and everything are feminine. There, there's nothing masculine. I tend to reject my masculine body. Um, you know it to be masculine. I identify it as masculine because the society identifies me as masculine. Well, it's not a matter of society, it's a matter of anatomy. True, but I look at myself and I hate the body, I have to well, show the general there, public. There it is, anatomically male. Well, this has a bearing upon what we can do and mm -hmm. what we call what we do for you. You say you feel like a woman. I, yes, I believe everything I do is feminine. I, I believe I'm a woman inside. Oh, Michelle. How does it feel to be a woman? It just feels like being me. I can't describe it as anything else. You see, she's right. Nobody knows how anybody else feels inside. Well, I feel I don't... I believe I don't actually feel the way a normal man should feel. Well, maybe that you identify with certain stereotypes of the female gender role, that is, the traditions, the behaviour, mm -hmm. the ideas, but that doesn't make you a woman. Well, I have to go into the background a bit. When did this idea first occur to you? It made sense to me when I was about 14 or 15. There'd been occasions before, it was up to, from about the age of about five. Um, well, let's go back to five as early as possible. Uh, what then? Well, when I was five, I didn't like mixing with the sort of male with boys at school. I always mixed with girls. The gay scene upset me. I didn't like the gay scene at all. Uh, I couldn't identify myself on the gay scene. I met a young girl who I eventually got pregnant and we got married. Um, the day after we got married, we both realised we'd made a mistake. Uh, we saw the first child of being born. And, uh, Shortly after she was pregnant again, and once the second child was born, we decided that we were leaving. She was leaving. Pregnant, pregnant by you? She was pregnant by me, yes. On both occasions? On both occasions. And here, I have to ask you, in comparison, the relationship with males, which apparently you enjoyed, and the relationship with your wife, <coughs> which was the preferable mood? Uh, sexually, I didn't enjoy it at all. It was a, a labour to have sex with her. With a woman? Um, yes. I found it very, very difficult. Um, but it was easier to identify with her uh, at home because I could cook with her and wash with her and clean with her and uh, basically lead a life that I'd led as a, a younger child. I remember watching that as a 15-year-old in a mess in here. Nobody knew, obviously. Um, and I remember that really humiliating scene and that enforced my um, instinct to keep hiding mm. because I wouldn't want to be subjected to that humiliation. That psychiatrist was a total asshole. He was evil, mean, cruel, cold. <clears throat> and how she kept her cool in that, I have no idea. 
But I just do remember, and I was watching that documentary with my parents in the room, my brother was in the room, and they were having the sort of, oh, ha, 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 you know, it was all very humorous and, oh, queer as a three-bob note, all the, all the usual sort of comments of the day that came from people I loved. And I remember feeling really sick to the stomach. That program was the first one that I really remember that affected me so much and absolutely convinced me there was no way I, it was safe to come out. No way at all. I find it horrific to watch and incredibly upsetting to watch. And I find it... I've seen a documentary once or twice. I find all of it really hard when I, I take my hat off to Julia for being incredibly brave and doing that. In some ways, I wish that there were cameras in every practice to see what clinicians and psychiatrists are putting people through when they're asking those questions. We do have a right to have good health care. We do want to have questions asked, but appropriate questions. We want questions where we are in partnership with the people who are meant to be there caring for us. I don't think anybody should have to go in and justify who they are like that. Rightly or wrongly, the power of television means that people start to talk about it. I just wish that we didn't have to be the recipients of such cruelty for our narratives to be told and for change to happen. There must be a way that it can be done where we are treated with respect and humanity, which is clearly missing from all of that clip. I wish some of my cis gay brothers could watch those clips but have gay superimposed over it or to reflect what it was like in the 60s. And if you're a gay man going to your doctor in the 50s and 60s, that's exactly the conversation your doctor would have had with you right then. Are you sure? Do you know what you're doing? Are you grooming people? Have you been groomed? Exactly the same language would have been used for us as cis men. I've lost count of the times when I was told it's just the phase you're going Exactly. Through. You know. Julia um, flourished in, in many ways. Um, so that I, it, it was, I think, um, they were lucky to get someone who was strong enough to do it mm. and who um, appealed to people. Um, and who m managed to go through the whole process, reconciled herself with a gay community in Manchester uh, successfully. Um, but it could have been very diff different, couldn't it? With it's it's a, it's a chance, isn't it, that that someone took that could have broken a yeah. Um, yeah. a less yeah. strong person. Mm -hmm. And you've got to admire the fact that she was 24 at the time. Oh gosh, she yeah. really had her head screwed on. The next clips come from the series Open Door, produced by the BBC's Community Programme Unit, which gave grassroots groups the chance to make a programme about themselves with greater editorial freedom and a more relaxed approach to balance. Here are two extracts from an edition made by the Scottish Minorities Group in 1976 called Glad to be Gay? which went out at 11 o'clock on BBC Two. When this programme was made, homosexuality was still illegal in Scotland and only partially decriminalised in 1980. In the first clip, a visitor to the drop-in centre explains his fears about coming out and the impact of negative stereotypes. And this is followed by an interview with a lesbian mother, who is only featured in silhouette for fear of recognition. You see, I've seen these people, homosexuals, on television... And I'm not like that. I don't want to be like that, and I couldn't be like that. 
I'm not effeminate. I enjoy playing rugby and other sports. And if that's what homosexuals are like, then I'm not homosexual because I'm not like that. Yes, but most homosexual people are not like that. What you're thinking about is a, a show business stereotype to make people laugh. Most homosexual people are perfectly ordinary, just like anyone else. Then how do I know if people are homosexual? How do I recognize them? I mean, I haven't ever met homosexuals before. But there's no easy way to identify a homosexual person. Then what do I do? Well, um, I suggest you meet a few people who are homosexual. Try to become friends with them. But I couldn't. I mean, I live with my family at home. I couldn't, for instance, bring anyone back home because my parents would at least ostracize me. And if my friends at university ever knew I was gay, then my life wouldn't be worth living. Well, let's take your parents first. You appear to be a good son. What makes you think that your family will reject you? Simply because of the comments they make about, well, homosexuals in television. The comments aren't nice, and I join in these comments too. Yes, but if your family find out that you're homosexual, they'll have to rethink their attitudes, especially if they meet and like friends of yours who turn out to be homosexual too. One of the most distressing problems that a lesbian faces is the fight for legal custody of her children. Here is a lesbian mother who is currently involved in a divorce case. Can you tell me why you're afraid of losing legal custody of your children? A lawyer told me that it would be all right to be divorced on the grounds of my lesbianism. Then another one advised me that if this came up in court, I'd probably lose my children. So now I have changed to a form of divorce that doesn't involve my sexuality. However, if my husband or his lawyer decide to mention this in court, I can still lose my children. Do you believe that you are an unfit mother because of your lesbianism? No, I hold a responsible job and have always been a good mother to my children. But unfortunately, the courts never look at income, home situation or the ability to look after children or any of the facts that they look at in other divorce cases. There appears to be enormous pressure on lesbian mothers to give up their children. Can you say why? Well, even my own mother has tried to make me give up my children as she thinks I've caused her enough embarrassment already. It seems to be assumed that the children of homosexual parents will grow up homosexual themselves, where in fact most homosexuals come from a heterosexual environment. That's part of their social problem. Cases have been reported where custody has gone to totally unsuitable fathers. Do you feel that judges have too much power in such decisions? Yes, they've been known to go against the wishes of both parents. I'm not ashamed of my sexuality, but I'm being made a scapegoat for society's fears. When more people are proud to admit to their homosexuality, maybe society will lose these fears. Then perhaps custody cases such as mine will be based on important factors and not emotional attitudes such as are expressed by the divorce court judges. Until then, any lesbian mother who, like myself, has a stable and loving relationship with her children is also very likely to lose her children. It was interesting that the, uh, the mother obviously had to stay completely anonymous and wasn't shown on camera. Um, I don't know whether that was uh, photographs of her and her children or just a model and children. Um, but, you know, obviously they weren't identifiable because um, it was obviously so serious she could lose her children. I thought it was quite sympathetic, the second piece, in that it was just letting her say, uh, give her arguments, and they were, you know, pretty overwhelming, and they just let her... So instead of having an, an, an interviewer 
um, saying, but surely, uh, you know, don't you think it's... It, it was a, another woman who was just asking open questions. And so it really allowed her to expose the nonsense of it. I think what was striking to me, though, was it was about the community supporting each other. I think that's what was really strong on both of the clips, you know, and you said the second one was really sympathetic, and I think the first one was this guy kind of talking through somebody that's going through challenges, you know? Um, although I did giggle about, you know, how we're going to, how going to spot one that doesn't play rugby. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you know. yeah, there's no gay rugby players. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was very angst-ridden, you know, there was very sort of, you know, this terrible thing, you know, there was, there was no levity or, or jollity, it was all, you know, it wasn't even, you know, well, you could have a nice time, you could meet a nice boy or anything like that, you might have fun, it was all sort of, it was all hand-wringing. They all seem to be focusing on, it's very, very serious, and it's different, and as opposed to the viewer's life, which is all one, you know, great, mm. they're just sitting there, watching their programme, having a laugh, and, and I think that's, that's where, where, where dramas and things can, can take up, because they can actually put them into real life, yeah. rather than interview. So it's, so what the viewer is only getting is a very serious or very negative vibe from it all. And, and if you were gay watching that, which nobody knew, I would imagine you'd probably sit there and go, no, I'm not going to come out. <laughs> no, that looks too horrific. I don't remember seeing any of these programmes that we've seen so far on the television in my, my youth, in my childhood. I would have been a teenager around this time. I don't remember seeing any of these. And I don't remember seeing uh, any positive portrayals of queer people in, in dramas. No, uh, the only, the only gay people I remember on the television at all was uh, Larry Grayson, who was a joke. Mm -hmm. He was a sort of asexual joke. Mm -hmm. And um, Mr Humphreys in mm -hmm. Are You Being Served? Mm -hmm. He looked like he was having fun, but he was the butt of a joke. Well, that's what we were, wasn't it? We were um, emasculated, we were ineffective, but we were amusing. But as long as we didn't express ourselves, express strong opinions, and for heaven's sake, don't mention anything to do with sex, as long as we were... It was a bit like... I'm sorry to say, a bit like Che, really. As long as we towed the line... Society's changed also insofar as... We don't, we don't really believe in towing the line anymore. But if you go back to the 1940s, 1950s, everybody dressed in... If you look at old footage, everybody dressed in exactly the same way. And so, you know, the fact that we're all, you know, completely different uh, is, uh, shows how society's changed just in our clothing. Do, do people in Che not have sex? <laughs> no, I... Um, I don't know, actually. I wasn't in it. I was in G People in GLF had sex. <laughs> we then moved to 1983 and the early days of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. The science series Horizon reported from America on the mysterious infection that caused the collapse of the immune system, affecting gay men, drug users and haemophiliacs. The language and journalistic approach of AIDS, Killer in the Village, was hard-hitting at the time, 
but is it still as powerful today? To the world outside, Hollywood is still the movie capital of the world, but to the people who live around here, it's also the center of the gay district of Southern California. Around Los Angeles, there are thought to be two to 400,000 gay men. What is new in recent years, apart from nitrites, is the sheer numbers that have gathered together, plus the greater sexual openness and freedom that gay liberation has made possible. Did this contribute to the spread of AIDS? In their personal relationships, gay men are free from feminine restraints. In heterosexual relationships, the male traditionally is the hunter. When both are hunters, the effect is explosive. Some gay men can claim hundreds of tricks, that is, new sexual contacts each year, so sexually transmitted disease is commonplace. For many, an inevitable part of the lifestyle, and regular checkups guard against the health hazard of sexual overload. This is the clinic attached to the Gay and Lesbian Community Services Center in Los Angeles. Room one, first door on your left, and you chart in at the desk. Apartment number six, please. No lesbians, women have more stable relationships and less disease if they avoid men. It's just men who come here, maybe 70 a night. How are you doing this evening? Just swell. Around 15,000 a year. The doctor wants you to take tetracycline, one capsule, four times a day for the next 10 days. You should avoid sex for the next 10 days, plus three days afterwards to see if your discharge returns. This clinic is run by gay volunteers. Other men go to private doctors, who may also be gay, or to the county clinic. Okay, you just came in for a routine screening, okay? There's no charge for a routine screening, but I will ask you for a donation, okay? Most men here have something. Gonorrhea, syphilis, NSU, hepatitis, the list goes on. With so much existing disease, who needs a new one? Compared with all the rest, AIDS is still quite new, and so is this. AIDS hotline. Yes, I'd be glad to give you the symptoms. Low-grade, persistent fever, night sweats, dry coughs that are not related to colds or smoking. Weight loss of more than 10 pounds during a period of less than two months. Uh, enlarging lymph nodes. 171. He's checking contacts. For the major infections, they want to know who else needs treatment. Should that be done for AIDS, too? Linda Laubenstein. As we gathered up more and more patients, as patients would meet each other in the office, it became apparent that many of the patients had had contact with one or two or perhaps more uh, other people who had the syndrome, which began to suggest to us that perhaps there was a sexually transmittable, a single uh, sexually transmittable agent that was being passed around in the community. I remember watching, I would have been 14, <clears throat> and then I went on to get HIV two years later, no, four year, three years later after that. So for me, I think it's, uh, it was a really powerful documentary and it really shook things up here it got an activist movement started here. We started to see a response as a result of that documentary. Lots of people refer back to it now as it being seminal in terms of that. And I think looking back on it, it's still a really powerful piece. It's a historical piece. But I think what's interesting when I watch it is it's, it doesn't feel overwhelmingly judgmental when no. I watch it. There's maybe not sympathy, but there's a bit of understanding and certainly... Uh, an attempt to explain 
to the audience. And I think what we also have to remember, the BBC programmes aren't made for us. They're not made for queer and gay people. They're made for Margaret that lives in, you know, Brecon Beacon somewhere. So that is speaking to her. But I do think when I watch it back now, I go, oh, OK, it's not as homophobic or AIDS-phobic as, as I would have expected. And it doesn't talk... I mean, obviously, some of the stuff there about, you know, women avoiding men and women not being at risk of HIV is problematic. But at the time, given what they knew and the audience that they were talking to in that room... It was real. At the time, on the gay scene, there was a, a thing against Americans. It's like, avoid the Americans. That, that, that did generate from this program. Yeah. And I remember that distinctly. It was like, oh, he's American, don't touch him. The other thing I think is interesting is that what people take from watching something like that. So I think that when I watch it, and I think when some of us watch it or watched it, we see a community coming together and responding to take care of each other when nobody else is. But what our media did was to latch onto there are gay men who are hunters having lots and lots of sex with lots of people. Therefore, they're promiscuous. Therefore, they deserve what is happening to them. So people were watching that and cherry-picking and also confirming the homophobic thoughts and feelings and narratives that they already had in their head. And that's, the, that's a pro- not the problem, that's a challenge when we have these programmes, wherever we're represented, no matter how positive or um, non-sensationalist the story is presented, those who are against us are going to pick holes in it and say, right, ah, that's the bit that we're going to run tomorrow's newspaper headline with, which is what then happened, as you said, in gay the sun, plague. the gay plague. There was a lot of talk after that time of innocent victims, as if as if gay men who were having sex with other gay men were guilty. Um, and that was very much the language that pervaded everything. Well, the chief uh, constable of uh, Greater Manchester, James Anderton, oh, yeah. uh, who was supporter, who was always supported by Margaret Thatcher, uh, said that we were swimming in a morass of our own... Swirling swirling in a cesspit of our own creation. I remember that because we had it above the stage at Pride in 1989. (laughs) Unfortunately, the wind kind of flipped it up so you couldn't read it properly. But it did say, we are swirling in a cesspit of our own creation. (laughs) As we've heard, television programmes provide not only a record of the times, but also a way of exploring our own place in society and the wider world that broadcasters try to represent. For one of our participants, the absence of positive LGBTQ portrayal and affirmative coverage stirs very poignant memories. All these programmes that we've watched, it brings up a lot for me because the first kind of inklings that there was a different lifestyle, if you like, for me... As Claire said earlier on, gay stereotypes like John Inman, like Danny LaRue, like Larry Grayson, Dick Emery were, and Kenneth Williams were all a sent, you know, they were all to make the majority of society laugh and they didn't represent me at all. I grew up the youngest of six Catholic boys and... I had no idea that I could be homosexual because of the stuff that I'd heard on 
BBC Radio and BBC TV because we were only allowed to listen and watch BBC. We weren't allowed to watch ITV because it was commercial television. And consequently, I lived life as a heterosexual man. And it wasn't until much later in the, 19, in the early 1990s that I realised that actually I was a gay man. And that was kind of around the time that The Sun was printing 10-inch banner headlines like Gay Plague and everything. And a lot of these programmes... I can see how my parents would have been indoctrinated. And that's a very important point. Most of the programmes we've watched aren't usually aimed specifically at queer viewers. So the response and understanding of the mainstream audience had a significant knock-on effect for LGBTQ people. I didn't see those programmes either. I mean, I was, I was quite young, but my parents did. And my mum particularly would have seen those programmes and... What that did was to inform for her that I would have a very lonely, very sad, very miserable life as a gay man. She completely accepted that I was gay. That wasn't the issue. She just knew that the world that I was going into, because she'd seen those programmes, would be really difficult for me. So I think that's the other side of it, is that people who watch those programmes who may have been sympathetic, or as we would describe today, allies and caring, the only image that they had was what you were saying. It was going to be a life of hand-wringing, a life of loneliness and challenges. And I think that's where those programmes become challenging for, for us in our community, that narrative that other people see. In 1988, Section 28 was passed into law, which intended to ban the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. Brass Tacks, as good as you, asked how this might work in practice and what impact it would have on young people as they explored their sexuality. This clip reminded our participants of the radicalisation and campaigning response of the LGBTQ community in the late 80s. When James was at secondary school, he felt hostility to gay people from the teaching staff. AIDS was mentioned as God's punishment on the unholy. He had to face more direct forms of abuse in the playground. Well, I was always teased at school. And in the third year, it started to be the kind of calling me a puff and a queer. Well, at first, I just denied it. I said, no, no, it's not true, it's not true. Um, but then as I realised it was true, I thought, well, I don't give a damn about these people. What the hell? And I just went fairly extreme. I needed an identity uh, without actually coming out to them. And uh, so I grew my hair very long and backcombed it all over the place and wore outrageous clothes and plastered myself with ten different shades of eyeshadow at once and bright red lipstick and nail varnish. Yes. So I got myself in, so you have to wear a blue plaster. And why does it have to be blue? I was incredibly camp. It was the only way I could cope. It was the only way I could express myself. I felt very isolated, as so I'm the only one. James's parents are themselves school governors. They're drafting a policy on all forms of teaching about sex. It has to take account not only of Clause 28, but also of last year's government circular, 
which said there's no place for teaching which advocates homosexual behavior. They're also working out how their school should respond to individual gay pupils. I think the school should be well informed about places where people, confused young people can go for expert guidance and help. And the expert guidance and help being positive rather than negative, not sort of, you must be ill, go to the doctor for help, which I know some school children have been told is actually a sickness and they need to be made well. But to say there is counselling available to help you explore your feelings about that, to help you recognise what you're saying and then make a decision as to whether you choose to follow a particular path or not. I don't remember seeing this programme, but I remember that those years very well. I went on all the anti-clause 28 um, marches and wrote to my MP and shouted in the streets and all the other things. Um, I felt in the mid-80s, I, I came out when I was 21, um, I didn't realise it was possible to live any other lifestyle than to have to, to marry heterosexually. That was the only choice open to, to um, a woman, was to be a nun, um, to be a career girl and a dried-up old spinster, or to be heterosexually married. Those were the choices that were presented to me. I didn't know it was possible to fall in love with somebody of the same uh, gender. Um, I'd never seen it on telly, I'd never read about it, I'd never heard of it, I'd never seen it in the cinema. And they used people's hatred, they made it sound, uh, we needed Clause 28 because children were being taught they had an inalienable right to be gay. Children weren't being taught anything of the kind. Children weren't being told that it was even possible to be gay, never mind if they had a right to it. So it was still very much the case. And that young man, he had at least had, had supportive parents. Um, so that's quite interesting to see that because I don't remember seeing it at the time. What I find interesting about that clip and the young man in there is, I think you're all right, there is it's, it's a much more positive representation as all those things. But I think what it demonstrates for me, because he would have been about 18, similar age to me in that clip, is a generational shift as well. This is a, a young gay man who is owning his stuff. He is not apologising for it. And this is at the same time that Clause 28 is going on, you know? He's, he's like, I'm going in there and I'm saying, to hell with these people, this is who I am and I'm going to own this. And I'm not saying that happened for every young gay person at that time, but I think we are seeing that generational shift happen where many of us were going out and we were protesting. We'd seen the horrors of the HIV epidemic happening to our older siblings, if we want to call them that, and we saw what the government was doing and we started to act. And I think we saw this revival of activism. So I think it's a beautiful line between the first clip of the Glade Liberation Front and the aspirations there to this young man in 1988 and people like yourself who were kind of going out and demonstrating. And I think it's just great that we're seeing that because in the late 80s, we do start to, to rise up again and to become much more vocal. And I think that young man's unapologeticness about who he is and what he wants to be in his place in the world is incredibly inspiring. And I think if I was a young person who had seen that at that time, I would have been a little bit more encouraged. I would have felt a little bit safer in the world to speak my truth.
The other thing I remember about 1988 was that there was so little representation on the television that if you knew there was a gay-related programme on, you'd stay in to watch it. Because <laughs> you didn't necessarily have one of those expensive video recorders. So you would you'd stay in to watch it. And, of course, there were only four channels. I think they used to uh, publish the TV... Um, listings in the gay paper and they'd highlight any programs with a bit of gay interest um and i would have the um numbers of all of the uh station of all the channels i mean there were four of them um by the phone and if there was a, a negative portrayal of gay people i would phone up and complain to the duty <laughs> desk and they all had a duty desk um, <laughs> <laughs> and if they did a really positive portrayal, I'd phone up and say, oh, congratulations on your programme, because I felt that it was the only way that the portrayal was going to change. I think because when I watched yeah. the very first clip, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is incredibly middle class. And then it's incredibly white as we go through. And I just think I phone Channel 4 when out on TV was on in 1980s and was like, there's no black folk on this. And you need to start representing black queer people as well and queer people of colour. So that was my observation about BBC's. Lack of representation. As we've heard, there are significant gaps in representation, particularly a lack of ethnic minorities in the clips I've found. But it's been fascinating hearing from our contributors about their memories of these programmes and how they reflected their own experience. It's particularly moving to hear from those who remember watching some of the broadcasts when they first went out and reliving the impact that they had. Our contributors have identified, quite rightly, that some production methods seem old-fashioned, some of the attitudes and perspectives are out of date, and some practices simply wouldn't be permitted today. But it's also been very enriching to identify aspects of programmes that highlight really strong and positive messages, such as organised community responses to HIV-AIDS and legal discrimination. Above all, it's important to remember the power and impact that BBC Broadcast Media has had in these seminal years of struggle for LGBTQ acceptance and equality. My thanks to the contributors from Opening Doors. Angela, Chrissy, Claire, David, Jay, Mark, Tony and Seca. 